So the uh, <clears throat> evening the evening of uh, the first full day of being here and um, we've had the day's worth of opportunity to meet yourselves or at least maybe to be confronted by yourselves by the unruly mind that seems to have lots of energy it can seem for all kinds of things other than the thing we're trying to attend to we have some sense of really we hear something about really relaxing only to notice that the mind seems very active going here and there or we have the experience that we want to have lots of energy for the practice but then suddenly the mind doesn't seem to have any we hear something about being really attentive really vigilant but the mind is anything but vigilant it's in the soup a foggy condition how interesting and because we're so addicted to doing we start to strategize what I need to do about the mind, about my meditation practice, about my posture, about being here, about the way I follow the schedule, about when I'm going to rest, about how much I'm going to eat. Whew. Exhausting. All this sitting quietly. All this walking slowly. Exhausting when we make it, as we habitually do again and again and again, when we make it into something for me to do. So I'd like to explore a little bit this evening our chronic, um, our chronic doing. That can be the title for the talk, our chronic doing. <laughs> There's a certain naturalness to the fact that our mind goes here and there and that different contacts, different experiences, different flavours of experience show up. There's a certain complete naturalness to that that's the same for you, for me, for uh, the Buddha, for anyone we can imagine. Sights come in, sounds come in, smells come in, sensations come in, ideas come in, memories come in, imagination comes in, imagery comes in. 
and then goes out again. I think it's worth acknowledging the naturalness of that. The natural um, movement, the natural texture, we could say, the natural unfolding of conscious experience. It's very helpful. It's vital, in fact. But even just to, to have an intellectual grasp, it's very helpful to, ha- to see human experience as naturally unfolding. And that's one of the reasons why I've given so much encouragement yesterday evening and throughout today to just pay close attention, to be as right in there as possible, as intimate as possible with our experience, to see its naturally unfolding nature. Again, a sense of simplicity to that if we take the doing out of it. And as we'll explore over these days, we have the capacity to be in touch with, to allow, to participate in, to know. To know, not as an idea, but to know with the resonance of truth, of clear seeing. To know the natural, the naturally unfoldingness. That doesn't work, does it? To know the natural unfoldment of experience. And when there's that sensitivity, when one sees mind take birth and move, as a natural process, when one sees a memory arrive and form itself and then dissolve as a natural process, when one sees a sight, one recognises the response to the sight, liking if it's pleasant, not liking if it's not present, pleasant, and the movement of that. One can recognise the natural, free process of it. And one can also recognise where there's something else added in, where it's not just a natural free process, where there's some stickiness to it, where there's some contraction around it, where there's the clue that, hold on, I'm doing something extra with this, that's making it stick, that's making it get a hold on the mind, that's pulling me, that's making me invest in a certain direction. That's limiting my view from seeing natural unfoldment of experience to making this something I have to do. So the encouragement to be intimate, to be close, to keep coming back to ourselves and to what's happening is in the service of really recognising the natural way that our experience forms and unforms, arises and passes, comes into being and dissolves.
And we have the, the very real opportunity, moment by moment, to be in touch with that. But we're so addicted to doing, as I was saying, that we've, we rarely, it seems, certainly, unless we've started to really train the mind, free the heart, allow ourselves to settle with our experience, we very, very rarely seem to leave our experience alone. We tend to steam in, charge in, blunder in with something to do about it. And very often we don't recognize that layer. So there's the first layer, natural unfolding of seeing and having a response, feeling and having a response. Hearing and having a response. Remembering and having a response. And then there's this, this second layer of something I need to do about it. Which we often don't see it as that. We don't say, oh, here I go. Trying to do. Because we get very invested in the strategy of what it is that we think we need to do. And we get invested in the fixing just look, just kind of recapitulate a little bit over the day. And just to look, not with a judgmental eye, and just with a curious eye, to see how much interfering you may have done today with the natural unfoldment of experience. How much you felt it necessary to do something about what's happening. How much you felt the need to fix, improve, get rid of, alter, etc., etc., etc. What's happening? So I'd like to... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I'd like to just unpack a little bit some of this doing. One of the first, we could look at one of the meditators' great doings. The great doing of meditation, which is, I've got to be calm. Right? No, I think. Pretty sure that's the first time since the beginning of the retreat that I've mentioned the word calm in the whole. I may be wrong, but I think it's the first time. But it hasn't stopped many people today saying, fritting about being calm. Saying to me, Oh, I can't seem to get calm. I've been trying and trying and trying to be calm. <laughs> But it doesn't seem to work. It's interesting. That calm is almost defined by the absence of trying. Trying and trying to be calm. How will we know when we've got there? 
I'm trying to get there. So it's a kind of <clears throat> amusing paradox, but it's rather tragic as well. If we look to see, if each of us look at our day today and see how much effort have we put into trying to get calm. And it's, don't want to depress you, but <laughs> all that effort is futile. The effort to have a calm mind. Right? In the face of naturally unfolding experience, we say, but I want to be calm. And we have some idea of meditative calm. It's true that <clears throat> sometimes in meditation, in the sensitivity, in the intimacy with what's happening, the natural unfoldment of experience can get very spacious, can seem like it's happening in very slow motion, can be underpinned by an extraordinary silence and depth and vastness in which the mind may well become very, very calm. But when that happens, it's not really because of something I've done. Calm mind is not a result of something I do. This is fantastic news. It's an invitation to give up. Trying to do calm. Calm, serene, spacious mind tends to not in any way we can organize, but tends to blossom out of the abandonment of doing, the giving up, the relinquishing of doing. Sometimes in a sensitivity to experience, we might notice that in every, every out-breath is a microcosm of relinquishment. As we attend to our breathing, there's an invitation in every out-breath to relinquish whatever doing we may have got into on the in-breath. To abandon our doing. All the way through to the great silence at the end of the out-breath. So our practice invites us to look out for trying to fix, for trying to solve, 
trying to get hold of or get rid of some aspect of our experience. Which we are calling the interfering of doing. And to look out for the, the painful attempt, actually. The painful attempt to make the mind calm. Another form of doing that we can get into that again floats above this natural unfolding of experience is we get into blaming or berating ourselves for how it is, our experience, or how we are. We can even, especially if we're used to doing this kind of thing, we can even use spiritual authority as an aid to blaming and berating ourselves. And a painful tendency we have to measure ourselves against some spiritual ideal. Exemplified by these two uh, supremely equanimous characters behind me. While you've been shuffling all day and uh, worrying about your knees and things, look at them, impervious, completely uh, serene. So we open our eyes in our muddled mind state and we look up and we see these guys. That tendency to measure ourselves against the Buddha. Not actually the Buddha, but against some bronze figure (laughs) who never moves. Wow, I should be like that. A bit of a tall order, a bit of a number to lay on yourself. I should be like that. Or we just open our eyes and look at the people next to us, projecting on them. We've no idea what's going on in their minds, bodies and hearts, but projecting on them the same stillness that we project onto the Buddha. Say, wow, look at them. I should be like them. We don't know what's going on for them. Maybe if we really knew, we'd say, oh, thank goodness, I'm not that bad. But that painful doing that blames and berates ourselves for not getting it, for not doing it right, for not being good enough, for having the wrong kind of mind or the wrong kind of legs. The wrong kind of uh, history. If only I hadn't grown up this way. If only I uh, had done more yoga before I came. If only I hadn't eaten so much lunch. If only I was wearing looser trousers. If only I'd slept better last night. Meditator's mantra. The addictive doer meditator's mantra. If only. If only. And what the result of that if only is to pile up pressure on ourselves no room 
No room left to appreciate the natural unfolding of experience, the natural texture, the natural dance of life. The natural way that birds sing and sun shines and the body moves and the heart feels and the eyes see and the mind moves. So busy trying to fix it or trying to enumerate all the ways in which we're failing to get it. And one of the antidotes to this uh, addictive or painful doing is gentleness, kindness, forgiving yourself again and again and again. Forgive yourself for having achy legs. Forgive yourself for having a wandering mind. Wouldn't you easily forgive anyone else? If somebody else was to say, Oh God, my mind never seems to stay where it should. Say, hey, it's okay. It's okay. It's normal. And yet it can be hard for us to offer that same it's okay. That same forgiveness to ourselves. So if you find yourself assailed by that kind of self-doubt, self-blaming, self-berating, it can be very helpful to at least have the intention Forgive yourself. It's okay. It's okay. I can begin again right now. Oh, yes, but if I'm going to begin again, then I really need to. Oh, oh it's okay. There's a beautiful quality to it. There's a way in which the heart can relax in forgiving ourselves. But you might have to watch out for what happens. So there can be the intention to forgive oneself, I'm calling it, to hold one's intentions gently, to take care of oneself. But there may be other kind of murky layers that go with that. We may feel we may feel uncomfortable with the idea of taking care of ourselves, of being gentle and kind with ourselves. We may be so used to trying to do it, trying to pull ourselves together, trying to insist 
that the idea of gentleness feels threatening to us. And if so, it's important to just make room for whatever comes up around that. You can't demand, I must forgive myself. Right? That just makes it into more doing. And it can be the intention to forgive and tends to be that either that melts the hardness of the doing or that it provokes some kind of uneasy feelings. And if it provokes the uneasy feelings about forgiving ourselves, if we're so used to struggling, doing, insisting, berating, blaming, that we can't tolerate the idea of forgiving ourselves, then just to be on the lookout for what happens when we hold the intention to forgive. Do we feel threatened by it? Do we feel uncomfortable with it? If so, how does that discomfort show up? So we're not demanding that we make the jump from doing to forgiveness. Right? That demand is more insisting. We're holding a wholesome, a beautiful intention to forgive and honouring what shows up. Honouring, in other words, the natural enfoldment that goes with that. And looking to see, what am I doing with it? So, I'll speak more about this over the days. But I wanted to be um, in the field, as it were, already now. That sense of caring for your practice, caring for your experience being gentle with your own participation, forgiving yourself your trespasses. I didn't know I was going to say that line, but it seems rather beautifully appropriate. Forgiving ourselves our trespasses. There's that sense in what I'm calling the natural unfoldment of mind, we can often feel it as though the mind is trespassing. That it shouldn't have gone here, it shouldn't be going here, and it shouldn't be going there. Forgive us our trespasses. It's beautiful. fantastic. So there's different ways we could look at the tyranny of doing. And I've given a couple of examples. The trying to fix and solve. The trying to make things calm. The blaming oneself. Trying to make oneself live up to some unrealistic ideal which of course we never manage to achieve. We never get to uh, arrive at at the impossible standards that we set for ourselves.
But aside from the various um, flavors of doing, there's the kind of central delusion. The tendency to put me at the center of life and refer everything else to it. That's how we habitually look out at life. There's all this life there, and then there's me, here. There's all of life, and one separate thing from it, me. All of you are lumped together, just life out there. Right? You all sort of belong in the one space together, and then me. And then my life becomes a negotiation with you, Lot. Right? Meaning the whole of the rest of life. And that central is that's the central position we have, right? A central subjective relationship to life. Our, a sense of me in here, I, as a subject, and then myriad objects of life. Right? And then we have this process of a subject, I, negotiating with all these objects through the mode of doing. So our basic way of relating to life is we could be kind of paraphrased by I do. I speak, I think, I interact, I eat, I explore, I meditate. Right? All of which are basic synonyms for this fundamental subjective position I do. Oh dear. So I'd like to scratch a little at this central subjective position. I'm wondering as I say it if it's clear what I mean by a central subjective position. Is it clear? Please shake your head if it's not. Wow. Good. The interesting thing about it is that we don't see it as subjective very often. This is tricky to follow in some ways, but please try. Because our very freedom of being depends on not just our understanding up here, but on our way of actually meeting this subjective position. So please don't struggle, if it seems like a struggle, to try and understand but rather just to see if one can feel one's way in, if your own experience resonates somewhere in the way I'm speaking about it. We don't tend to see the basic subjective position as subjective. We see it as the way it is. You're like this, we say. I'm like this. It's like this. And we go around reinforcing that view to ourselves. I'm like this, you're like that, it's like such and such. And we fill in various different adjectives depending on the mood of the moment. I'm a nice guy, you're terrible, and it's like that. I'm right, you're wrong, it's clear, (laughs) for example. So that we may, there may be in that kind of self-inflated, defended place, 
That's how we hold up the subjective view. Make it as if it's objective. I'm right, you're wrong, it's clear. Or we meet it from not an inflated place, but a more contracted place. You're right, I'm wrong, it's terrible. (laughs) In both instances, we've missed that it's a subjective view, and we've taken it as objective. And we see this time and time again in... I mean, in really, in the whole way our experience is built up. And the, and the fact that if you're often in a conflict, if you speak to the two people involved, each will have a very clear, objective picture that it's the other one's fault. Right? That I can be very clear. It's, it, he's to blame. I was really very... Um, I was very respectful. I was very mindful. I was very attentive. But the other guy... He was rude, he was uh, disrespectful, etc., etc. Wow, you think, wow, terrible, the other guy. But you go to talk to the other guy, who will tell you, I was uh, really uh, sensitive, I was polite, I was uh, reasonable. The other guy, he was uh, such and such. This is called losing sight of the subjective and taking it to be objective. And so we find ourselves meeting life in one of those three basic ways, actually, which kind of correspond to what I was calling the three poisons last night. Either the poison of greed, that's reaching out and trying to pull life towards us. Right? I'm right. I can. I am. I do, I see, I know. Right? That kind of th- trying to thrust the self, the sense of I, into life with all its agitation, with all its struggle, and of course, in a way, with all its futility. Because w- what it is we're trying to thrust into life, we're trying to impose on life, impose on others, trying to build up, trying to falsif- fortify our sense of self in life. We couldn't be any more intimately involved with life if we tried. We're absolutely included already in life. We're not that separate thing we've taken out called I. We're not, how could we be separate? Look how much I just penetrate space when I wave my arms around. How could I be separate? But that basic attempt I can I do which tries to pull myself into life or, or pull life here and some of, for some of us that's our primary um, way of meeting life I can I do I will I say And then there's this other, which is you know, pulling life towards us, as it were, or attempting to. And then there's that other pr- primary position which says, I can't, I don't, I won't, I haven't. Right? She has a kind of fundamental position of pushing life away, of trying to withdraw from life, of feeling that I need to get away from withdraw from, escape from. 
equally futile. How could we get away from life? Where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? We might feel that wish to escape from. But in the same way that it's futile to try and enter life anymore when we're already awash in it. How can we escape when everywhere we can go, there we are. Or the third position, rather than the reaching out, I want, I can. Or the pushing away, I don't want, I can't. I'm trying to withdraw. That sense of not knowing what it is one wants. Or if something does arise, not knowing if one wants it or not. A kind of caught in the push, pull, in, out, and the pain of that. And so I don't want to oversimplify the model, but we may find ourselves predominantly trying to pull life towards us, trying to push ourselves away or withdraw from life, or kind of going round and round and not knowing what we want. One minute pulling towards, the next minute pulling back. Central to all these three positions is the mistaken sense of the subjective as objective. The mistaken sense that there's me and there's life. And I need to get it, whatever the it may be, or get rid of it, whatever the it may be, or that I'm in some ambiguous, ambivalent relationship with it whatever the it may be. Sometimes it's an it, sometimes it's a him, or a her, or even an aspect of one's own inner life. And I'm trying to get certain qualities, or get rid of certain qualities. What are we going to do? So it's ironic that this that we've made so much diff- that we make so much difficulty for ourselves by having a sense of me, of I, of what I'm doing, of what I want, etc. In the ways I've just described, so much at the heart of things. And yet the way through that um, dilemma or paradox is by giving real central importance and attention and investigation to that sense of self. To have a sense of its subjectivity in the ways I just described, the very fact that I can hold one clear view about what happened and somebody else can hold an equally clear view about what happened and that they completely differing views, it reveals to us something about the, the myth of objectivity. 
So we give a lot of attention in this practice, in these teachings, to noticing moment by moment what's happening. By giving attention to that sense of subjectivity. So often, easily, because we're so used to doing, I do, I can, I will, I am, that that tendency to claim, to lay hold of with the sense of self, just grabs hold of awareness. I'm aware of the breathing. Then I stopped being aware of the breathing. I got caught up. Then I remembered. Then I came back. And then I was aware again. What a maniac. This I is. He wants every piece of the cake. I'm the one that's aware. Then I'm the one that got caught up. Then I wasn't aware. Then I got aware again. Rubbish. Rubbish. I is incapable of any of that. As we start to refine our capacity for cultivating awareness, and most particularly as we refine our capacity to recognize awareness, we see that everything, everything, everything arises within awareness. has to, otherwise it wouldn't be known. Right? If something arose without awareness, well, we have nothing to point to. We can't point to anything that we're not aware of. can't point to anything in our experience outside of awareness. Conventional, simplistic view suggests, again, this is the arrogance of I, that I have awareness. We identify I means mind and body, or some strange combination that we can't quite work out of those two. Sometimes it goes to one, the body, Sometimes we say, I, I am sore, for example. Sometimes the I latches onto the mind, and we say, my arm is sore. So that you go from being the body to the body being a possession of the self. Again, the I wants every piece of the cake. It wants to be the body, next minute it wants to be the mind. Next minute it wants to just be a property of the mind. I'm angry. <laughs> where, did, where does that come from? As if that's who I is. So is I any of those things? Or does I leap around maniacally from being one to being another? In which case he's sounding fairly demented. <laughs> the very sense of I that lays claim to all this stuff, where do, where does, where do we recognize it? Where does it get known in experience? Within awareness. I can't possibly be aware. Actually, if we look closely, there's awareness of the movement, of the sense, of the contraction, of the intention of I. This is important. We're so used to conceiving and acting in a way that builds up the sense of I. And the way, all the ways I've just described in this talk, which I'm kind of paraphrasing as I do. All our attempts to manipulate, control, uh, organize, etc. 
that initially we just very easily apply the same eyeing, what the Buddha called ahankara, means eye-making activity. We apply the same eye-making activity to awareness. But actually, how, how could it be? We say, I got caught up, but then I became aware. It's kind of impossible. I, if I look, when I'm caught up, I'm so busy being caught up, I couldn't possibly remember to be aware. But awareness is infinitely bigger. Infinitely bigger. Infinitely more well-established than I could ever be. So however far I go, however confused I get, however much of a mental mess I create, awareness just keeps on re-establishing itself. The power of the sense of I keeps on collapsing, in other words, into the awareness that reveals it. I get caught up, but life just keeps on waking me up to that. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter what eye-making activity you might be involved in right now. As soon as I suggest it or point to it, look, the ever-presence of awareness is self-evident. Our capacity to know that knowing, that revealing, that allowing, that animates our being, here it is. Any sense of I arises within it. I is just another object. If this feels a little uh, wordy or complicated, please let it just go in one ear and out the other. Don't strive to grapple with the idea. But just to see if we can recognize as we sit here the spacious, accommodating self-evidence of awareness and the frantic flapping that I does to try and make sense of, get a hold of, claim the knowing as its own property. I know, I, I, I am, I, I, I let it flap. If we understand not as an idea, but through our own intimate seeing, our own direct recognition. We start to have a real standout flavour of the nature of awareness. Then the fiction of an objective eye has to crumble. All that eye-making, all that eye-doing reveals itself as just another part of that self, of that natural 
unfoldment of life. Just something else that comes into the field of awareness. Sights come in, sounds come in, feelings come in, the sense of self comes in. The sense of self coming in is no more tricky or problematic, essentially, than any other contact. Its trickiness comes in its tendency to claim experience and the authority that we've given it, built up over decades. So we have this kind of exquisite opportunity to end its tyranny. And we do that not through trying to do anything about the tyranny, which is just more of the same, more ahankara, more eye-making activity, but rather by being extraordinarily quiet, watchful, interested in how our experience is forming moment by moment and what's actually happening there. just as we listen to the silence in the room I wonder if you can notice that that silence has an aliveness a wakefulness to it The wakefulness that reveals whatever sound comes into and goes out of the silence. An aliveness, a receptivity that allows for life to arrive, to unfold, to form and dissolve. I hope these reflections can support us in the next days in trusting awareness, relaxing into awareness, trusting to abandon some of the doing. Trusting to let Life unfold according to its own agenda rather than mine. And so that the fruits of that trust and the fruits of that relaxation, the fruits of that letting go of doing, 
can be a real ease of being. A real freedom from the tyranny of all I think I have to do. This is the promise of these teachings. And this is the invitation of this practice. May it be so for each one of us and for all beings. So there's about 20 minutes or so for some uh, further quiet sitting if you wish or some walking in the evening light and then there'll be a bell for just a short sitting that we'll have together to end the day. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.